This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Hi everyone, it's Erin Jones here and you're on 3CR listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Um, Today we're talking about a couple of different things, electric vehicles and feed-in tariffs. So, let's have a start off with electric vehicles. The future is electric. Conventional cars have to go. The transition to electric vehicles is realistic and affordable. Imported cars and the oil to run them are 20% of our imports and a big part of the trade deficit. These are just a few of the quotes from what we're going to hear tonight from our guests Larissa Waters at the Brisbane launch of the Beyond Zero Emissions Electric Vehicles Report. Dr. Stephen Bygrave and Dr. Gary Alms, futurist um, a speaker at the Hunter Valley EV Festival, where they were challenging school kids to come up with an electric bike and then race it. You'll find bright ideas from tonight's show that haven't even hit the mainstream media yet, and with climate change in mind, it's up to us to open their minds. In the second part of the show, we're going to look at feed-in tariffs, which kickstart the take-up of solar power, but they're now coming to an end. We'll hear from Tom Nichols of the Community Power Agency. He tells us about the future of homemade electricity and how to make it more democratic. But first of all, let's start with electric vehicles, and Vivian is talking to Dr Gary Elm. Now we're going to talk to Dr Gary Elm. The recent Hunter Valley Electric Vehicle Festival caught my eye and Gary Elm is from Newcastle University, I think the Tom Farrell Institute, and they sponsored this electric vehicle festival. Gary, I gather you are the sort of person who sees opportunities to take things to scale. And in the um, internet research I did, I found that you had a blueprint for low-carbon Hunter Valley. What did you find there in the way of opportunities for clean tech products? Uh, so the blueprint for a low-carbon Hunter Valley project was actually run a number of years ago. It was um, funded by the then state Labor state government. Um, and they were sort of looking forward, you know, obviously um, people have been thinking quite... The Hunter Valley is a little bit like the Latrobe Valley in terms of its, uh, its area of uh, coal production. It's a very big coal producer, lots of power stations... Uh, Newcastle is uh, pretty much the world's largest coal export port. And so, um, you know, there's quite a lot of thinking trying to be put into what might be the future of clean tech industry development in the Hunter. Yeah. Um, and that that project sort of, um, in, in some ways, I, I found had some difficulties because um, for political reasons, uh, 
and this was quite a number of years ago, where we sort of like had to talk about coal and we had to talk about clean tech, but they were both on different oh, sides of the table sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, so in some ways it was kind of frustrating because we had to, we wanted to talk about opportunities in the clean tech industry, but we weren't allowed to mention the coal industry or the oh. aluminium industry or any other sort of things that were really quite important. What um, about now? Do you see opportunities now? Because things have moved along quite a bit since then. <laughs> yeah, so one thing that has changed a lot in that time is, is the narrative. And so uh, so now you're actually allowed to talk about, um, you know, like how how you might get further value add from the coal, export coal sector through clean tech and how the clean tech industry might be a sort of like a sustainable value add to the legacy for the coal sector. Um, so it's trying to think about how you might use coal sector infrastructure and skills and relationships. Um, so one of the things we were doing at the time was sort of looking through um, the coal sector itself is a large-scale consumer of energy and technology resources. Um, you know, the coal um, doesn't sort of just jump up by itself and run and get on a ship. You actually have to put quite a lot of energy and technology into doing that. Yeah. And a lot of the, uh, the, the in fact, the ways that locally we make money out of the coal industry is actually really supplying the supply chain for that coal extraction industry. And so how you actually extract the coal could um, really drive that supply chain. And so that's things like, you know, instead of buying diesel, you buy renewable diesel or you buy renewable electricity, um, the vehicles that you use. The coal industry is already a large user of electric vehicles, um, mainly for liability and for uh, for energy efficiency reasons. Um, so any, anything you can plug in is already sort of an electric vehicle in the, in the coal sector. Mm. And so um, we were then sort of, as part of that, we had identified that um, vehicle manufacturing uh, was actually a strength for the Hunter Valley at the time, not in the vehicles uh, like Victoria, we're actually building passenger vehicles, but in the in the heavy vehicle sector. So mm. the region here was building uh, trains, was building mining equipment, was building buses. So it's building some of the big things. Uh, and we we sort of thought that, well, we're going to have a, an area of declining sort of like uh, vehicle manufacturing uh, unless we have a, a move in, in play to try and think about how we uh, move that over into an area of transport innovation. And so that's really where the Hunter Valley Electric Vehicle Festival came from, was mm. a sort of trying to create a platform that would let us talk about um, transport innovation. And in a way, um, focusing on electric vehicles is was a good a good focus at the time because uh, electric vehicles are sort of you know core to the existing coal and industry sectors, but also you know part of the new renewable future. So it was a good linking thing yeah. um, that sort of brought things, you know, brought the technology and the, and the people across. Well, how does the festival raise awareness about climate change? Uh, so in, in, originally, we um, deliberately phrased it so we didn't have to necessarily have a, a debate about climate change. This would just there's a lot of things that sort of are smart things to do without necessarily having to have a climate change no. debate. And so instead of saying, "Well, let, yeah, let's all wait until we've got agreement on the climate change debate before we do these things," let's just do these things because they're smart for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. Um, and then you know, once people have a, it, it becomes much easier for people who sort of see their livelihoods threatened by the climate change debate, if they can, they can visualise a future for themselves, which is, you know, rosy and prosperous, um, you know, in the, in the sort of you know, climate-friendly future, then that allows them to, to sort of then come over and invest. They don't have to feel defensive because they're not actually defending their standard of living or their, or their job. Um, and so this was sort of um, a deliberate 
sort of strategy in a way to say there are some things that are just you know just good ideas regardless um, and then it helps people then to sort of visualize that the world would work in a different way and and still be a, a fun and exciting place to be and so it sort of tries to pull that threat out of out of the future and lets people think about the future in a you know more sort of uh in a more opti- you know, optimistic and opportunistic way yeah. as opposed to uh, in you know, a climate of fear and, and so it's about what you might gain rather than what you might lose. Yeah, and it's so creative. I, I looked at some of the things on your website about that festival and I think a lot of kids who like electronics would have come along and I'd like to know how do you get them involved? Yeah, so sitting down right at the beginning, the, the festival has always had three components to it. So when we looked at this going forward, we went, okay, we, we need... We need the community to be able to come, come in and look and see and touch and feel electric vehicles to demystify it and, and make it not seem so scary. Um, you know, so they can actually come in and have a go and go, oh, that looks interesting. It's actually fun. It's actually engaging. So that's why we have a component which is called the electric vehicle show. Because uh, we're also interested in skills development. And at the time we first created the festival, the mining boom was actually in full swing here and the clean tech industry was actually struggling to, um, to get uh, you know, good labour uh, because that was all being sucked up by the mining sector. So it became critical for us to develop a pipeline of, um, of skilled you know, people with good science, engineering, math, tech sort of business now coming out of our high schools with appetite to go into university um, and, and do those sort of engineering roles. Uh, and so we created an EV prize competition and so that competition is really around encouraging STEM education in kids through electric vehicles. And the easiest way to do that to get you know, kids involved is just to give them a race, basically. So we had a challenge where could they build an electric mo- uh, motorcycle and come and race against each other. Oh, great. Um, yeah. and, so, <laughs> and we we developed a set of rules but let the, let the way the schools interact be quite open. Um, and so that sort of let the kids bring all of their particular talents to the table. Um, rather than sort of giving them a list of things they had to tick off and learn and said, well, you know, what are your talents and how would you like to engage? And so that became a sort of a, a very good way of not just building skills but also building more of an entrepreneurial sort of attitude oh. and team building. Yeah, team building and too. Then, uh, Go on. Yes, definitely. Team. And that, that's, uh, team building is actually what the, the kids get um, when we have surveys to work out what they've got out of it, um, learning to – there's a whole bunch of simple things around, you know, oh, now I had to change a – a bicycle tire, which is always good, yeah. um, but uh, but teamwork is something that they all rate as the the biggest thing in the project because we really just set a task and then it's up to them to develop a team and to have the team work together to deliver and they really need a team to deliver it. It's not a it's not a solo activity. Um, the team has to work together to be able to do it. Yeah, look, um, I. I... I do a lot of stories about the Latrobe Valley and the Hunter Valley workers. You know, I keep trying to see who's thinking about the jobs of the future, and, and you're a futurist. You know, I notice that you're very keen on, you know, envisioning these things. And once people, as you say, can touch them, see them, have a drive, you know, have a go, the future reality of these products might become clear to people but I'm wondering if the manufacturing of electric vehicles whether they're cars or bikes or electric buses or even trains and trams are these going to be the salvation for areas where the coal industry is closing down um yeah yeah so we I would actually think that the chances that the manufacturing industry itself would um would come up yeah manufacturing is now like the coal industry it's actually a global industry and so 
manufacturing is mobile, it moves around the world and it moves around the world to areas that have a natural advantage for manufacturing. So if you think about the, the manufacturing industry and the coal industry in the same sort of way, the Hunter Valley and the Latrobe Tro- the Valley have coal industries because they have an area of natural advantage in coal. You know, the Latrobe Valley has an enormous brown coal resource. The, um, the Hunter Valley has a very high quality black coal resource. And so, uh, you know, and in the case of Latrobe Valley, it's close to power stations. In the case of um, the Hunter Valley, it's close to power stations, but mainly most of the coal here is actually exported, so it's, it's close to a high-quality export port. Um, and so there's an area of natural advantage, which is why we're a global competitor in coal. The, the question is, if you want to move to a manufacturing future, where is your area of global um, nat- natural advantage in manufacturing? And unless you have that, you, know, you shouldn't be surprised that you're not a global player in the manufacturing field. So Australia um, has not quite understood that there's, if we think about manufacturing policy now, that um, that internationally uh, countries are in some ways buying manufacturing capability. They're, they're, they're putting out. You know, so you ask yourself question, you know, why is most of the world's solar panel manufacturing in China? Why is you know, the new Tesla Gigafactory being built in Nevada? And the answer to that is, is really manufacturing policy that's created a area of natural advantage for anyone who wants to operate in those particular zones. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you know, there's no reason at all that the Hunter Valley or the Latrobe Valley should become an area of manufacturing unless we're prepared to back up and create an area of global natural advantage for manufacturing in those regions. We're not doing that at the moment. So. What would that look like? <laughs> well, for example, you know, why is the... Tesla Gigafactory being built in Nevada. What's well, because Nevada put up one and a half billion dollars in tax credits. You know why is um, solar panels building being built in China? Because China said, well, we'll give you if you want to build solar panels in China, we'll give you the land for free. We'll give you twelve years tax free. We'll give you um, you know guaranteed sales for the first two years. We'll give you a no interest loan. We'll put a tariff on the imported product. You know, and what else would you like? So mm. that's what global manufacturing policy looks like, and. We shouldn't expect that to land here unless we have an area of natural advantage. That can be in in the financial side of policy. It can be in skills. It can be in you know just um, access to resources. Any of those things. But you have to put together something that gives you an area of natural advantage. Well, we've got, uh, what we were focusing on. Go on. Sorry. Go. I was going to say uh, we've we got the natural advantage of coal, and you had something on your website about diamonds. <laughs> is, that, is there anything <laughs> else to do with the coal? It seems very wasteful to just no, burn no. it. <laughs> Well, what we were, um, we, we had a program called Diamonds from Coal. So that was trying to help people think about the coal sector. And that's that really, um, if you think about coal in the ground at the moment, um, we've got this sort of, you know, limited um, opportunity to turn the coal resource in the ground into an area of long-term value, which is what a diamond is sort of thing. Um, and so uh, in doing that, you know, obviously there's a global need to keep as much coal in the ground as possible. Um, but unless you're looking at value-adding the coal sector and then making sure that value-add actually lines up with that sustainable future you're likely to build, all you're going to do is end the coal sector and have nothing else following. Um, so we were trying to find links between how we could use the current strength in the coal industry to, to develop a, current, a, you know, a, a new ongoing sort of asset for the community that didn't require coal. Um, and so that's what the Diamonds from Coal was about, was really to try and say, well, the coal industry has created value from its existence, but obviously, you know, it's going to end, it's going to end for a number of different reasons. Um, 
and you know, it's probably best for the world if it ends sooner, but how do we make sure it leaves a lasting value in the region as opposed to just a great big black hole? Yeah. So that's really what Diamonds from Coal is all about. Okay, well, now, Gary, we're, listeners, we're talking to Dr. Gary Ellum from Newcastle University, and you're famous for your innovative thinking and your futuristic thinking. Tell us what you inspired the guests at the uh, festival, Envirom- um, Electric Vehicle Festival dinner. How did you um, uh, yeah. talk to them? Yeah, so I had a lovely dinner with, um, with BZE actually launching their electric vehicle plan, which, yeah. was, um, which was great to see. So it was a, a really good night. Um, and I suppose uh, the points that I was trying to make were really around the what we call the digital disruption of transport. So we've seen you know, the digital sphere impact on you know it's, it's impacted on journalism, it's impacted on um, communications, it's impacted on a lot of different spheres, and now it's actually coming into to disrupt transport, and it's doing that in sort of I suppose two major ways. Uh, one of those is the sharing economy, and the other one is um, is uh, really the development of AI and uh, and driverless vehicles. They're sort of two really big steps. So one is electronics becoming smarter, sensors becoming cheaper, and being able to create cars that are safer because they start to take over more of the control themselves and eventually are able to drive themselves. Then there's also the mobile phone and, and, um, and wireless technology, which lets people now uh, share resources much easier. You combine those two things together and you get a a car that can drive itself and come and pick you up from where you are and take you to where you want to be. And as soon as you do that, you actually change the business model for the car. So while 80% of trips in Australia are via the private passenger car and most of our suburbs are car dependent, they're car dependent because there's no real other option on how to supply them for transport. But the the driverless taxi um, starts to be a way of offering a transport service that can compete with price and availability and convenience with the private passenger car. Um, and that's actually fairly important for Australia because um, while, we're in, while we're very worried about emissions, and that's, that's an important thing, um, the actual fact is we, because we now no, now no longer build cars and our oil, natural oil supplies are beginning to dwindle, it means that we're importing more and more to actually drive our transport system. So about 20% of goods imports to the nation our cars and the oil to drive them to run our transport system. It's the biggest single hole in our balance of trade and it's about the same impact on the economy as the as the mining sector. Wow. So um, so it's not just a matter of trying to have cars which are less polluting. We actually have to work out how to have fewer cars and flip the energy supply to a domestic energy supply. Now, it turns out that the electric driverless taxi, um, you need... You know, maybe 20% of the number of vehicles to do the same transport job because you don't own the car anymore. And at yep. the same time, you solve the congestion problem. You flip the, um, you flip the energy source over to electricity. So it's much easier to make renewable. And that's really the, the BZE message, um, on how to manage, uh, car, carbon emissions is to flip them to electric and then, and then supply the electricity through renewable means. Um, it solves the congestion problem. It solves a whole bunch of accident problems. It solves parking problems. It opens up a whole bunch of, um, options for extra mobility for the elderly and for a whole bunch oh, of other things. So yeah. it's, it's sort of like a, almost a universal solution in a way. <laughs> it solves a whole bunch of problems, ticks all of the boxes. It's almost a universally good solution. Yes, a lot of people um, have said so to that, me they wouldn't trust a driverless car, but I think I would trust one, even despite that terrible accident where a man did die um, some months back. But um, I, I think I would trust yeah, it uh, once uh, they got it, that every every vehicle was doing that, so you wouldn't be competing with another form of vehicle. 
But the, the problem that people have actually had is that people are too trusting of driverless vehicles. So, um, so the Tesla car that was involved in the, the accident you're referring to, for example, there's actually different levels of autonomy. There's, there's not a black and white thing. There are, um, and the SAE and other organisations actually lay out different levels of autonomy. So on the lower levels of autonomy, the car is really designed to be driven by itself, but under very close supervision. So, um, and that's what the Tesla car is. So the Tesla car is, is designed when it's in a very specific set of circumstances, like a freeway that's well marked and everything's, you know, you mm-hmm. don't expect things to be coming out from the side. Um, it's designed to be driven autonomously in those conditions, but only under very close supervision. So the driver needs to be in the car and, you know, like, and still taking care of everything at the same time. They don't have to necessarily be turning the steering wheel, but they still need to be in close supervision of the car. Um, there's some much higher level of autonomy. So, for example, the Google car, um, it's really designed to be driven. You know, well, in fact, they produced their own vehicle, which didn't even have a, a steering wheel or a set of pedals in the car. And they've since argued that, um, that having a driver in the loop actually makes the car less safe. The driver's more likely to intervene and crash the car than they are to actually save the car. Mm. Um, so, and, and the National Highway Safety Authority in the US has actually agreed with them that that is indeed the case for their system. So there are different systems. It's like saying, are all drivers safe? No, some drivers are very untrained and not very safe, and there are other drivers that are highly experienced. And very, so each system is slightly different. Now, the reason why Google went for their very, um, their very in-depth system that could drive itself is because in the early days when they were testing their technology, they found that the even though they told the drivers that, you know, this is this is a system that needs to be supervised, as soon as it sort of made it down the street 500 metres and hadn't crashed, the driver then suddenly assumed, that, you know, that had great faith in it that it was going to not crash under all circumstances and suddenly stopped paying attention. Um, so in that, in that respect, um, people have actually been too trusting of some of the earlier forms of driverless vehicles and, uh, and that's what's been causing issues for some, uh, which is why... Organisations like Google are now forward are looking to produce vehicles which the driver has never intended to drive. You know, a human has never intended to drive. The car itself is designed to be you know, classed as the driver from the beginning to end mm. and there's designed to be no human in the loop at all. Right. Um, well, look, what, what can you see coming up in the future as we uh, charge up the cars at home or at work? Is this, uh, how is this going to affect... Um, the emissions level, you know, like we, we hope it will be renewable energy that goes into this car, but how's it going to change the pattern of, uh, of electricity? Yeah, so what is actually interesting is that the ownership model for the car actually changes the charging model for the car. So a lot of our numbers at the moment have been based on the idea that people are going to own privately owned electric vehicles like we own privately owned internal combustion engine vehicles. Oh. And therefore, many of the cars are going to be actually charged overnight at home. So, um, so you'll drive your car to work, leave it at work all day, drive it back and plug it in when you get home and it'll charge overnight on off-peak electricity, which actually means on coal-fired electricity. Um, now, that actually does quite a bit to smooth out the load on the grid and does a whole bunch of other stuff, so it's not necessarily bad for the grid, but it's not fantastic for emissions. Um, you know, if you're looking at renewable energy, you know, renewable energy is perhaps solar and wind, and that, while the wind is actually does occur at night, the, the solar is actually better during the day. And so um, when you actually flip to a driver uh, you know, vehicle as a service, mm. um, 
you can have a very different arrangement. So first of all, in a car you want to own, it's sold to you as freedom. So you want this massive battery so you can drive forever, basically, and not run out of, you know, not have range anxiety. But on a day-to-day basis, you only drive at a small amount. So you, the vehicle you need, like a Tesla, for example, lovely car, it's got a massive battery, like 400 kilometres worth of range. But on a day-to-day basis, you're only going to use it if you own it yourself in a private car. You're only going to drive it for maybe 20 or 30 kilometres mm. in a day. So you've got this enormous battery that you've invested in, and you only drive at a very small amount. And that's very inefficient. If you use that same vehicle uh, in a taxi mode, then it ends up driving, you know, three or four hundred kilometres a day, and you actually use the battery pack much more efficiently. But you could, with a different kind of battery chemistry, have a faster charge battery, which is designed to charge during the day itself. So you might actually put several cycles on the battery in the day, and then you could actually do those charge cycles in the middle of the day when the sun's shining, uh, and make it sync better with solar energy. So. So the actual ownership model for the car, whether it's a shared car or whether it's a privately owned car, changes when you charge it, and that has impact for how much storage you need in the grid, uh, how much renewable energy you can actually suck up in the grid. Uh, and so we haven't really done those good sums yet to work out what that, you know, what the change to a shared vehicle system, uh, what that really puts on the, you know, how that actually really loads the grid and how that interacts with the renewable energy, because it will do it quite differently to the private passenger car. Well, one of the BZD people was telling me about a company in Utrecht called Longbox Net. I don't know if you've heard about them, but and she said to me that 150 cars of that sort used as a service would would take a coal-fired power station out of action. You know, it, it it's the equivalent of you know using um, um, renewable energy. So I think some people are trialling these things and it is changing the patterns of use. A lot of people don't like public transport. I, I actually don't drive. I do love public transport and I go back and forth by train from Sydney to Melbourne and I like it. I'm used to it but a lot of people really right. don't like public transport and I wondered, just to finish with Gary, the, tell me about big vehicles like trains, buses and someone said to me that you can't use um, like electricity to for a big, a heavy vehicle like a truck, like interstate truck, is that right, or can you use pra- electricity for practically every vehicle? Uh, you, can, you can certainly use electricity for everything. In fact, um, the bigger the vehicle, um, like <laughs> electric um, motors have are extremely reliable and have massive amounts of torque. Uh, and the really big stuff. So, if you think even diesel trains are actually diesel electric trains that actually have a diesel. Uh, generator, which then drives electric motors in the wheels. So, um, so the the problem with big trucks is the charging issue. Um, it's really you know they do lots and lots of kilometres, and um, and they have a very high duty cycle. You know they go flat out most yeah. of the time, and so if you've got a, a battery, you know how do you actually charge the battery? Um, and we've done quite a bit of work, and there's a few different organisations working around the place. So. For example, you might have the same issue with the train, but we actually know how to solve that one, and that's because we know where the train is and we know how to charge a train while it's moving. So you don't have to actually stop the train to charge it. You can put an overhead wire, and the the train will actually be an electric train and run on an overhead wire. And so people have said, well, can't we do the same thing with trucks? And so there is actually a a number of trials going at the moment where they've put um, overhead wires over some parts of freeways and now they have electric motors in trucks where the truck actually puts over up a, um, up a uh, pantenary and connects to the overhead wire and drives an electricity on the freeway. Uh-huh. Um, now, at the moment, they're designed to run electricity on the freeway and then switch back to a 
diesel engine when they run into town. But of course, if the run into town is actually not that long, then there's no reason why you can't actually replace the internal combustion engine with a um, with a, a battery and you have it recharge on the freeway and then drive into town on the battery mm. um, to do the final leg of the delivery. So people are working on that and it's um, it's entirely feasible. In fact, I've <laughs> written a, a paper on trains which says that you know, can we convert our, our diesel freight system into electric doing a similar thing? And we worked out that we could actually put a, a battery electric locomotive on the train that could recharge from just short sections of overhead that we'd place on strategic hills where the trains travel slower and use most of their energy. And with only electrifying maybe 10% of the network in terms of overhead wires, we could run the entire uh, network on electricity just by running on battery in between. So it's, um, it's certainly possible to do heavy vehicle stuff and people are working on that. Um, there's lots of people working on battery trucks as well as the overhead version. Um, so in terms of being possible, it's certainly possible. Um, it does require some infrastructure spend and a few standards and a few other things that we haven't quite necessarily nailed, but, uh, but people are certainly working on it. Great. Well, thank you. I'm really glad we spoke to you. We've spoken to you double the time I intended, but it's so interesting, and I wish I was a more educated uh, interviewer because I don't really have much background in this, but I'm very fascinated by all these ideas, and you sound like you're doing a really lot, and I especially like the public engagement with young people and with the coal-affected communities, you know, gently easing them into the future as we have to. I think that's marvellous what you're doing. So thank you very much for speaking to us today. Lovely. Thanks, Vivian. Thank you. So that was Dr Gary Ellum from Newcastle University. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Now we go to Brisbane. This is an edited version of the launch of Beyond Zero Emissions Electric Vehicle Report at QUT. The speakers are Dr Stephen Bygrave, Professor Karen Hussey, Adjunct Professor David Hood, AM, and Senator Larissa Waters. We then have a suite of plans uh, called the Transport Plan, if you like, under Zero Carbon Australia. We've already launched at QUT the High Speed Rail Report, uh, and tonight we're launching the Electric Vehicles Report, and there's one more to come, and that'll be around public transport, and we're still struggling with how we might frame that. Also, we've just got the industrial processes plan underway, which is looking at aluminium production and the chemical industry and big processing plants and how we might achieve zero emissions in that sector. We launched the Land Use, Forestry and Agricultural Plan at QUT a few months back, and uh, also at QUT a couple of months back, we launched the Renewable Energy Superpower Plan, which is one which brings them all together and shows that Australia, if we get smart, can be a superpower for the world in terms of renewable energy zero carbon, etc. So all of those things has led to some people following us fairly closely, and I just want to throw a couple of quotes at you. I'm excited by the prospect of zero carbon cars and consider electric vehicles as an important technology for reducing transport sector carbon pollution. Who said that? Stephen Miles, our Minister for the Environment and Heritage Protection and Minister for National Parks and the Great Barrier Reef. I am delighted that the transition to electric vehicles is finally gaining genuine and sustainable momentum after decades of having been opposed and undermined by the oil and auto industries. Dr John Hewson, some of you might remember him from a few years back, another good friend of mine, VZD have for years been the pathfinder, mapping the possibilities for our rapid and inevitable transition to a low carbon society. 
The Zero Carbon Australia Electric Vehicles Plan is another vital piece in this jigsaw that we must complete to make the transition, but particularly important given the need to move away from our current social and economic reliance on old technology. Ian Dunlop, who, as most of you will know, stood for the BHP board twice. But Jack Nasser doesn't like him, so he didn't like him. Palaszczuk government is unashamedly committed to increasing the uptake of renewable energy in Queensland. Uh, to act on climate change by reducing emissions in the energy sector, including through the increased uptake of electric vehicles. We're certainly preparing for an electric vehicle future. There has been some uh, debate for some time about the expected take-up uh, of electric vehicles, and I've often I've described this before, it's been a bit, bit like waiting for Godot, but we are now getting into the space where the technology is really uh, taking shape and, uh, and is becoming uh, incredibly viable. Uh, it's land. For instance, Tesla received more than 400,000 orders for its new cheaper Model 3 uh, in March, and we're seeing General Motors launch, of course, the Volt, uh, an, uh, an affordable electric vehicle. It's starting to get into that range for the average consumer. Uh, they're no longer electric vehicles are no longer oddities. Uh, they, they've got premium performance uh, cred at the high end, and they're starting to get affordable. Uh, just recently, the Australian energy market operator uh, predicted an 80-fold increase in electric vehicles over the next seven to eight years in the national energy market. Uh, I'm not surprised by that. Electric vehicles, of course, can be powered by 100% renewable energy, uh, and uh, I think my personal view is I think the take-up will be a little quicker than some people might predict. I think when the average consumer realises that that one purchase uh, that they might make over the next six, eight, ten years, uh, in that one purchase, and they switch from a traditional combustion engine car to an electric vehicle uh, that can be charged 100% renewable energy either through the grid or perhaps through their solar PV system. And in Queensland, we've got the highest uh, per capita take-up of solar PV on domestic rooftops in the world. Uh, when people realise that that one purchase can have such a massive impact in terms of reducing emissions, uh, and they realise the technology is not only as good, it will be better uh, than uh, combustion engines. I actually think uh, I'm, on, I'm on the optimistic end when it comes to the predictions around electric vehicles once they actually start being taken up and people start to talk about it and uh, how good they are. Uh, you know, being able to uh, uh, for it to be serviced less often and remotely, where the vehicle doesn't actually leave your, your garage and uh, it, a software upgrade upgrades your vehicle. Uh, there's a lot of benefits and it is very much a new world. Thanks, as I came up behind a bus in um, Milton Road the other day and I was just sitting there watching the back of it and it had this incredible statement like, this bus produces clean, fresh air for the community. I took a photograph of that and sent it to uh, Stephen Biles and to the Lord Mayor. So please tell me how your bus is producing clean, fresh air, just because it's gas and not diesel. Senator Waters, you're facing an incredible time in the Senate coming up with this amazing structure that we've got. And I thought it was going to be... um, Didn't Malcolm say something about making it simpler and easier so they could pass legislation? Would you give us a little insight into what you see in the future and how that might sort of worry or shift the policy settings for you know, zero emissions? That's a tricky question, David, because I'm a natural optimist and yet the makeup of the Senate and indeed the, the government retaining power, albeit with a reduced majority, historically would speak to us 
in fact having a continuing challenging time when it comes to the climate. But globally, the momentum is just so great towards renewables that I can't help but think and believe that despite the domestic politics that we have um, in the current government and with the new Senate, with a few actual climate deniers now elected as representatives for Queenslanders, um, despite that, I still think it's inevitable that we will get decent climate policy. It's just a question of how long that will take. And Karen's already canvassed some of the great federal options that we could bring in. Obviously, a carbon price is one great tool. Um, moving to 100% renewables as quickly as possible, that's actually an easy policy decision to take. And there's a number of different mechanisms that you can achieve that with, whether or not it's the renewable energy target that we currently have, um, whether it's a mixture of government direct purchase of clean energy um, through reverse options or contracts for difference, which many of the other states are trying. I think Queensland's looking at some of those as well. So it's not a question of whether the mechanisms are possible, it's a question of whether there's the political will to take those decisions. One decision that I hope the government comes under increasing pressure in the short term to take is getting rid of those fossil fuel subsidies because there's an awful lot of pressure on the budget. Parliamentary Budget Office how much the taxpayers are spending, courtesy of the Federal Government's budget decisions, on subsidising um, cheap fuel for uh, the fossil fuel sector and accelerated depreciation. It's $24 billion over the Ford estimates. So that's a current um, estimate from the Parliamentary uh, Budget Office, so it's a quotable figure. $6 billion a year we are wasting in public money to cook the planet. Um, and to affect the health of many coal mine workers. So we could obviously use that money in much more useful ways, whether it's to incentivise EVs, whether it's to move us promptly to 100% renewables, whether it's to invest in hospitals and schools. It gives us an awful lot of flexibility, and I think with the budget constraints, perhaps, I hope that that might be some potential climate, I consider that a climate policy, potential climate policy that might be delivered in the short term. Certainly we'll keep the pressure up for that. Thank you. Quick question for you, Stephen. Did, did the report, which I confess I haven't read thoroughly, did it consider drop-in, drop-out batteries? Because you said something about the batteries. You know, the car becomes obsolete if the battery dies. And, and I, I noticed there was been a place, I think, that was talking about a drop-in, drop-out battery system, so that you don't ever own the battery, you just put a recharge one every time you go in. You don't have to plug it in for an hour to charge it. Yeah, that was certainly the, the better practice model where you drive into what, what would be a, a refueling station and the battery would, would you, you replace the batteries within you know, two to five minutes. That's not the model we're looking at in this report. The, the model we're looking at in this report is essentially three levels of charging, level one, level two, uh, and level three, home charging, public charging infrastructure, and then the supercharger um, infrastructure that Tesla's rolling out, amongst other things. So the cost of that charging infrastructure are factored in to the modelling. It's about $100 billion. Um, I was actually talking to one of the authors of the report before the launch, and that's probably an overestimate of what would be required um, in the sense that home charging is becoming much more effective. It's already very effective. So you'd imagine that, and as the range increases of vehicles, that you probably don't need as much public charging infrastructure. But in the short term, in the transition, you probably need to give confidence to the consumer that they will never run out of fuel, they will never run out of charge. So that public charging infrastructure is probably an important signal to send to the market that that range anxiety is not an issue. 
But over time, I think that public charging infrastructure won't be required. Thank you. Minister, is there anything you'd like to add in terms of policies and things that you've just heard onto the great talk you gave us before? Well, look, I think uh, at this stage we're looking at an electric vehicle policy from a state point of view, so I, I can't really preempt any announcement there, but uh, I can say that the, the superhighways are quite advanced. Uh, and that, that's an interesting process, so I think, uh, you know, uh, the, the model... Uh, it, the traditional service station model is an interesting one and in terms of you'd think they would be really interested in, in it and, and actually some of, the, some of the networks aren't that, you know, they have a very short-term way of looking at it because the numbers are so low. So what we're seeing is a different sort of model being rolled out uh, in the US where you know, Tesla has, a, has their own nodes. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of impacts that has uh, in terms of, um, you know, vehicle infrastructure because uh, I think if, uh, if the existing networks aren't careful, they might see another node start to happen, and when, once it really takes off quickly, we'll, we'll see you know, different urban patterns starting to form a little bit around it as well. So, yeah, look, I think uh, it's an exciting space. We'll be doing some announcements uh, in the future around the superhighway and also about a broader strategy, uh, but we are certainly engaged in it and um, you know, watch this space. We live in exciting times, I think someone said recently. And then the census system crashed. <laughs> now Vivian goes to meet Tom Knockolds at the Community Power Agency. She wants to know what will happen when the feed-in tariffs come to an end. I'm at UTS University in uh, Sydney and I've um, come to talk to Tom Knockolds at the Community Power Agency. So welcome, Tom. I'm very glad to hear that you told me you listen to our program sometimes. Now tell us about your Community Power Agency. What does it do? Thanks, Vivian. It's great to be on the show. I, I do listen to the program a lot, actually. Um, Community Power Agency um, was set up um, in 2010 by our co-founders, Nikki Eisen and Jara Hicks. Um, since then, we've expanded to a team of five. And what we do is we support communities across Australia who want to develop their own renewable energy um, projects that, that are owned and, and deliver benefits to mm. the, the communities themselves. Um, so we do a, a range of things. We do capacity building, helping groups get their mm. projects um, off the ground um, and developing resources uh, for, for them. We also do policy and advocacy work. Um, and we do sector level coordination and, and that's something that I'm quite involved with is, is helping, uh, playing the role of the Secretariat for the peak body covering community energy in Australia, the Coalition for Community Energy. Okay, well, I'm just one little solar citizen. I have solar panels on my roof, and I'm feeling as if the government isn't supporting any me anymore because they're taking away the feed-in tariff, which has made my um, energy very um, cheap, if not free, a lot of the time. So uh, we've been part of a uh, collaborative effort uh, led by the Total Environment Centre um, and funded by Energy Consumers Australia to help the solar citizens, the households like yourselves who are facing the end of bonus feed-in tariffs and navigate this difficult time. Um, and what um, Total Environment Centre have done is they've, they've commissioned a report from Alternative Technology Association, ATA, um, to look into who's affected, what the impacts are going to be and what steps they can take 
um, after the change take, uh, or during this transition period. Um, and the first thing to point out is that you're not alone. In New South Wales, South Australia and Victoria, there are over 275,000 households whose bonus feed-in tariffs are coming to an end. Um, and here in New South Wales, there's 146,000, and the, the remainder are split roughly evenly between South Australia and Victoria. Well, I'd like to know why this is happening. A few years ago, we reported on the miracle that was happening in Germany, and the word feed-in tariff came in, and that was the way that they got so many solar roofs, a million solar roofs first, and then they just kept building on it, and it was this word feed-in tariff. Why is it being withdrawn? Well, the feed-in tariffs, I, th I think we need to go back to the reason why those feed-in tariffs were created in the first place. First of all, they're state-based schemes, um, and, and they were set up for a couple of reasons. First of all, they were set up to uh, support the creation of a new industry or support the further development of an emerging solar industry in each one of those states. That was seen as beneficial because it was going to create jobs. Um, also, there was a recognition that solar technology was one of these technologies which if you invested in the early stages, then the costs would come down. Um, and that... Um, uh, creating that incentive at an early stage, th that's been really successful in each one of those states. The costs have come down. We now have um, you know, the claim in Australia of, of being the country that has the highest rate of residential rooftop solar in the world. Um, and uh, I, I think there's very, it's very clear that it's been a great success. Um, people these days can install solar without those bonus feed-in tariffs. And it's uh, much more financially beneficial for them than the first people to get onto the scheme. Okay, but still, climate change is, you know, on our backs, and we've signed up in Paris to make as much headway as we can. I still don't understand why. What are there other incentives, or are there, is there lobbying going on for the government to really, at a national level, facilitate and incentivise more take-up? Well. One thing that I'll point out is that the renewable energy target and the uh, the small scale, scale renewable energy target is still in place. So if you're wanting, if you're considering installing solar on your house today, you still get that upfront discount, the deemed value of the energy certificates that your system would produce, and it still accounts for an approximate 30% discount of the cost. So let's make no mistake, there is still significant government. Um, contribution to um, encouraging people to put solar out there on their, on their rooftops. It should come as no surprise to anybody involved that these, feed -in these bonus feed-in tariffs are coming to an end. Um, they were always designed to support the development of this industry and they were always set to expire. What we unfortunately face right now is a situation where a whole lot of those are ending all at once, as mentioned, 275,000 households. Yes, well, what can we do? Um, people, I've read quite a lot of information about this. They talk about getting a net meter. Um, I've seen PowerShop talking at various conferences. It's just one I'm not advertising for them, but they have turned up at a lot of conferences and they, they seem to be offering a good deal if you change over to PowerShop so you get a net meter. Another thing is advising people to use their solar power in the day, like do your big washing and um, anything you might use a, a lot of electricity for, perhaps on Saturday afternoon when you're at home, or but you can't you know, heat your house or cool your house in summer, you know, in the, in the middle of the day <laughs> to prevent being hot or cold at night. 
Yeah, so what what we've come up with, and this is driven by the ATA report, is a, a fairly simple five-step plan for these households to navigate to make sure that they're getting the most of their solar after the feed-in tariffs come to an end or the bonus feed-in tariffs come to an end. Um, it's actually a four-step plan if you're not in New South Wales. So the first step um, it only applies to New South Wales, and it says that you're currently on a gross metering arrangement, which means that all of the energy your solar panels produce gets exported to the grid. Um, and that's really good if you've got a bonus feed-in tariff, which is above the price you're paying for energy you import from the grid. However, that's not going to be the case after the feed-in tariff comes to an end. And so the first step for New South Wales customers is to get yourself onto a net metering arrangement. And for most circumstances, that looks like it's going to be installing a smart meter. Um, and the retailers are gradually offering free smart meters to the existing solar bonus scheme customers in, in New South Wales. There's a bit more detail in there, but essentially <coughs> step one is really important. It's not compulsory to change your meter, but if you don't change your meter in New South Wales, you, you'll, you'll be worse off than if you do. So you should definitely change your meter and you need to get moving. What about at the national level? We've just recently heard that Josh Frydenberg, the new Minister for Energy and Environment, has made a commitment to a national approach to energy, which I welcome myself. I, like, I would like a national feed-in tariff, for example, rather than all the states doing a different deal. Do you think we should have a standardised national feed-in tariff or another incentive to get a rollout of more solar? I'm always here in the climate perspective, you know, to roll out as much clean energy as possible on commercial roofs and on domestic groups at a national level. Do you think that that's a good idea? I think there's a lot of merit in having a national approach because it means it's easier for people to to know where they stand, and particularly for those organisations that do have a footprint across state boundaries. I think that um, when it comes to this idea of, of, of ongoing feed-in tariffs, and they need to be carefully applied to make sure that they're not creating you know, perhaps unintended outcomes or perverse outcomes in yeah. the market. Community Power Agency, we're all about promoting communities having a greater benefit and participation in the energy market, and we, we believe and promote the idea that there can be um, specific feed-in incentives for community-owned renewable energy in Australia. And we think that's a great way of transitioning from this very private per-residence household solar feed-in tariff, mm. which has benefited those people who are fortunate enough to have a sunny roof on a house they own, mm. um, uh, and take things to the next level where instead of benefiting just private householders, um, that a new feed-in tariff could be structured so that it's benefiting whole communities. Um, at the national level, what, what could um, the government do to aid community power groups? I know your community power agency does uh, help groups set up wind farms or solar, solar farms. What, what could they do to, to facilitate that? Well, there's a lot that they could do. What, one of the challenges that community energy groups face in setting up projects that bring benefits to them is getting access to the uh, expertise and the support they need to get their new energy enterprises off the ground. Um, another thing that I really want to point out as well is that if we're talking about national energy and national energy reform is that these community organisations 
invariably they want to install renewable energy. Mm. They want to install renewable energy. They also want to install this energy in a way which they're participating in. They're deciding what's going to be installed. They're operating it. They're they're, they're owning a part of it. Mm. But the point is that this is about renewable energy. And because these community groups are developing new energy business models, they're coming up against the relatively inflexible um, and not particularly helpful regulations that exist in the national energy market. Now, the national energy market is an extremely complicated thing. Some people have described the Australian national energy market as the most complex machine on earth. Mm-hmm. It's not just technically complicated, it's also comprised of a whole set of complex market mechanisms. Mm-hmm. We all know about the mechanism to put a price on energy, um, but there are a whole range of other prices that talk about things like the quality of energy. Now, we don't need to know all about all of that, but the one thing that is good for us to be aware of is that sitting above all of these legal structures and the energy markets and everything is a single guiding set of principles, and it's called the National Energy Objective. Now, that National Energy Objective um, includes a couple of key things which are, which everyone is supposedly working towards. Mm-hmm. I, I probably misquote these, but off the mm-hmm. top of my head, they are to create safe cheap and reliable electricity. So if Josh Frydenberg has a look at that, what could he just do to tweak it and make a whole lot, life a whole lot easier for people like us? Great. It's the one thing he could change is to add clean, green and renewable energy into the mix. So at the moment when we talk about making rule changes that are going to allow the future energy systems that are being built around us and are going mm. to continue to build to allow this a- amazing energy, trans- energy transition we're in the middle of mm. to take place and to take place at the pace we need it to take place, those changes can't be made effectively because all of the regulators go back to the objective and the objective doesn't cover clean energy. So that needs to change. Okay, so in summary, if we're visiting our MP and the subject of the national energy market comes up, we just say, add the objective of making it clean. Exactly. And this is becoming a very hot topic. In about a month's time, there's going to be a, a, a COAG meeting specifically on energy, and the, the word is that there's going to be talk of reforming that, and that, that's certainly what Josh Frydenberg was indicating in, in recent media stories. Okay. So in summary, at the home level, if you have um, solar panels already on your roof, you need a new net meter. If you're in New South in Wales. In New South Wales, yes. <laughs> and... Um, I'm told the listeners power shop has a good deal, but you said most retailers will... Uh, we'll, we'll put in three smart metres, that's correct, okay. yes. And once the feed-in tariff is gone, we need to change our behaviour, just in a nutshell. So what you need to do is make sure you're using the solar energy when it's being produced, that's during the daytime when the sun is shining. That's the second step. Step three is to um, have a plan for, well, think twice about gas and consider developing a plan for how you're going to transition away from gas. Um, The ATA report goes into detail around that. Step four is to make sure you're getting a good deal from your energy retailer. And again, the, the, the information we have on the website will, will, will cover how to achieve that. And the final step is to consider adding more solar or batteries um, down the line. Okay, I think a lot of people are talking a lot about batteries, but is that feasible at the moment? 
It is certainly feasible. Um, if you were to take a strict economic perspective and say, are you going to get a return on investment before the batteries reach the end of life or end of warranty period, most people are telling us that that's not going to be um, financially mm. viable, but people are motivated by much more than just economics. Um, someone said to me the other day, we don't buy a car because of the return investment it's going to give us. So I think batteries are heading more towards that sort of decision-making thing. And if you're in South Australia, they make more sense than, than anywhere else in Australia right now. But certainly have a plan and be aware of what the options are and what the opportunities may be. Battery prices, as we've, we've heard many times from other people on your show, battery prices are going to be coming down very rapidly and it's a, and it's a changing space and there will be opportunities to soak up that extra solar power during the day into a battery so you can use it later on in the day. All right. Just lastly, um, I was starting to feel very hard done by having installed my solar panels ages ago when they were expensive. But you just said to me before we started something about, well, it is we're moving into a fairer system potentially. There's a chance here to make it much fairer. Could you just explain that? Well, I think it's important to understand that everybody that's been getting these feed-in tariffs has been getting a, a premium price paid for their electricity. That premium we're referring to is it's more than the price they've been paying for the energy that they're buying off the grid. We don't think it's a, a time to end feed-in tariffs per se, but we think there's a great opportunity that exists right now to, th to rethink who's, who's the target of those feed-in tariffs. And, and we would always say at Community Power Agency that communities more broadly can be beneficiaries of, of a new uh, second generation of feed-in tariffs. Okay, so on that happy note, uh, thank you very much to Tom Knuckles um, at UTS today, but he is with the Community Power Agency. Well, thanks everyone for listening in. Today we've heard from Dr Stephen Bygraves and Senator Larissa Waters and also um, Adjunct Professor David Hood from the Brisbane launch of the Beyond Zero Emissions EV report and also from Tom Nichols, as you just heard there with Vivian. So thank you very much for all those guests who appeared on the show. Um, we'd like to thank the team, Teddy, Jody, Roger and Viv for the work they put in pre- and post-production. And in the studio, you've been listening to Erin Jones and Andy. So thanks for listening, everyone. Tune in to our sister show on a Friday morning or listen to the podcast. So next up is going to be the Save Albert Park show.